hey, there's this website I really like. It's called theringer.com. Right now you can find pieces about the World Cup, the NBA, year in review, best shots of 2022 in movies, the 101 best LA rap songs of all time. We just have so much good stuff, including our NBA ranked page that we just launched. Go check it out, theringer.com. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is gonna be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it, I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game and they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. I just put up a new rewatchables on Monday night. Van Lathan and I did I Am Legend, the Will Smith movie that just celebrated a 15-year anniversary and over the last couple of years has really changed in context in some fascinating ways. Will Smith, COVID. Um, it's a movie about a virus that basically wipes out mankind. Um, very, very, very fascinating rewatch. And the first hour of that movie is just awesome. So anyway, go check that out. Next week on Monday is going to be the last rewatchables of 2022. And it is a very, very big movie. Can't wait for you to listen to that one. One last thing before we get to the podcast. If you saw today, Adrian Wojnarowski, Sham Sharania uh, reported that Matt Ishbia is finalizing a purchase of the Phoenix Suns and that the price is $4 billion. Couple reasons this is interesting for people to listen to this podcast. September 22nd, I told you I thought the Suns were gonna go for at least 4 billion. I think I picked 4.4 as my final number, 4.4 billion. And that was three months ago, recession. Maybe I would have guessed 4.2 if you made me guess a week ago. But regardless, I thought I was gonna go more for more than four. And you might remember from that podcast, go to like the 25 minute mark. The one name I mentioned was Matt Ishbia. And the reason that he was kind of floating around at that point was because there had been a lot of buzz that he was closing in on buying Mark Lazarus' stake of the Milwaukee Bucks, who he co-owns it with Wes Edens. They kind of flip-flop who's the governor of the team. And I think he swung from grabbing a piece of the Bucks to once the Suns became available jumping in on that. He's a really interesting guy. He played at uh, Michigan State and made a ton of money. He's also involved with his uh, with his brother, Justin, who um, who's also a billionaire. He's with Shore Capital. So it's going to be those two guys. 
It's unclear how much of the percentage they took. I've heard 60%, which means they had to put up about 2.5 billion. They did not buy 100% as far as anyone I've talked to. Um, it was not all of it. This is important for a couple of reasons. One, I think the Suns, as I mentioned, that September 22nd podcast, I think the Suns are one of the eight teams to get in the NBA because of the city, the proximity to Vegas and LA and the history of the franchise, warm weather, all that stuff. Also, he could come in and bring somebody big in with him as a GM, GM executive. You know, this is a team that they've had James Jones running them who I think did a good job putting together the core of the team, but has also done some really weird stuff like the Jalen Smith drafting him and then dumping him after two years when Halliburton went two picks later. You know, I think he's done a good job. I certainly don't think like, you know, he, he's going to be there for another 20 years. So I, I always watch with the new owners. They always want to bring their guy in. So who is that guy? Could he go big? Could it be somebody like, you know, could it be like a Sam Presti type? I don't know. Watch that. So that's one piece. The second piece, they have now established the mark for the expansion franchises, right? One of the reasons it was so important to get to four is now they can say, all right, Vegas, they know that Vegas expansion team is going to the Fenway Sports Group and LeBron. I keep telling you this. So that's going to be four billion. And then Seattle will be like 4.5, 4.6, something like that. So they know combined, that's about 8.5 billion. What's interesting about the expansion stuff, and one of the many reasons I'm positive it's going to happen, and maybe they'll wait until after they get the new CBA done with the players, but it's happening. The money goes to the owners. When they do a deal like with ESPN or Turner, whoever, and it's usually a 50-50 CBA, maybe it'll maybe the percentages will tweak slightly, maybe it'll be 51-49, I don't know, but it's usually around 50-50. And the players get half of it and the owners get half. And the half that the players get, that's how we have the salary cap and all the things that comes with it. If you have two expansion teams, the money goes to the owners. So that, let's say it's 8.7 billion for combined for those two teams. Every owner gets a $290 million check, all 30. And they probably work in some stuff where the media rights get delayed for a couple of years, whatever. I think that's one of the reasons it was a good idea to buy the Suns. Even though $4 billion in this economy seems kind of crazy, what are the other big teams that are coming up? Like maybe Charlotte, Indiana. Um, I, I don't know. The Lakers are already like tied into the, to the Guggenheim investment people. I just don't know who else is coming. So not only do you get in with one of the best teams to own, in my opinion, one of the best eight, but now an expansion is coming. You might get two hundred and I don't know, 75 million back just for being one of the 30 owners plus the CBA and all the money coming in. I think this is a really smart purchase by them. Ishby is only 42 years old and he'll be the youngest owner that the league has, which I think is also kind of fun. And the league's getting a little long in the tooth. Even somebody like Cuban who came in as a renegade, he's now in his 60s. So, you know, some fresh blood in that respect. And also they get Sarver out, which was the biggest thing because... You know, there was just another terrible story in ESPN about uh, the workplace culture there just this week. So it was time for him to go. So there you go. Four billion for the Suns. We'll see. Watch when you read these stories over the next uh, couple days and weeks. Watch to see what the actual percentage is. And then uh, I'll be really interested to see when he takes over. And then when he does take over, 
what's his first big move? All these dudes, they often make their one first big move. So we'll see what it is with him. Anyway, coming up on this podcast, we're going to have Rob Mahoney talking about um, what teams are going to pivot either as buyers or sellers. We're at the 30 game mark. There's a lot of questions right now. And who's going to be first to market in both respects? And then Seth Wickersham from ESPN. We're going to talk Belichick Craft. We're going to talk Daniel Snyder, all the weird NFL owner stuff uh, that it just never ends. These billionaires, they're all nuts. Build your own fucking stadiums. Um, That's it. That's the podcast. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, taping this a little after lunchtime Pacific time. Rob Mahoney is here. We're going to talk about pivot teams in the NBA. Rob, 30-game mark. What does that mean to you for pivot teams? I mean, I think it's kind of the ultimate test of an organization, right? Like, can you get an honest feel for where you are 30 games in? Maybe by, by, maybe by January 1st at the latest, do you have like an actual look at where you are? And some of these teams that we're going to talk about have been, you know, undercut by injuries. They've had issues that they've had to sort out. Maybe they've had like really good weeks that could make you foolishly think your team is actually good when it's not. I don't know, like your your accurate read on your locker room on every level of your organization. This is when it comes into play to me. Like, can you make that read in real time? And you want to be first in. Yep. If you're selling like the Laker picks that 2027, 2029 unprotected, those can only go to one team. So part of the conversations right now, if you're a team like Washington that's on a big losing streak that looks like they're going nowhere, has a chance to get into Wembenyama sweepstakes, one of the ways to do that is to trade some of your best players. But at the same time, you want to grab those Laker picks or you want to grab whatever other asset this. So we're going to go backwards. I did a little power ranking of teams 30 to 1. And we're going to go backwards. I bet the 27, I've Washington as the fifth worst team in the league right now. They're 11 and 20. Yeah, they cannot trade Bradley Beal until January fifteenth, which might be too late for the Lakers. <laughs> um, he also has a no trade clause. That's really one of the dumbest deals I've ever seen in my life. Fifty million a year, and you could only go to teams that uh, you agree to go to. Two hundred fifty-one million for five years. Kuzma's a little more palatable at thirteen point five or thirteen million. He's got player option twenty twenty-three. Yeah. They have Will Barton fourteen point four. Porzingis is sitting there for somebody if they want to get nuts. He is a player option. Uh, they got Morris and Gafford. They don't really have a lot of uh, crazy draft capital. They owe the Knicks a protected first. That's it. Washington, to me, strikes me as a team that should be moving now to try to get into the Wembenyama thing. Do you, is there any reason they shouldn't do that? No, yeah. I don't even think it's an if they want to get nuts with guys like Porzingis. Like, they should get nuts. They should. Be, everyone should be pretty much on the table who is available to trade. Obviously, the Beal case is more complicated, but like Kyle Kuzma is a perfect example. Here's a rule of thumb. If you have a really good player who's underpaid, who is almost definitely going to turn down his player option for next season and is basically batting his eyelashes at other teams, you should probably trade him. Like You should probably try to get something for him. And in part because Kuzma's a really attractive player to good teams. Like He can do a lot that help the teams who are on the other side of this dynamic, who are going to try to push in to get better, to climb the standings, to take advantage of some of the chaos in the league right now, 
Kuzma is like a prime candidate for those kinds of teams. So why? I mean, he should be in trade rumors every week. He should be like the subject of phone calls every week until he's dealt. There's just no reason he should be a Washington Wizard by the end of the season. Yeah, there's this list of dudes. And like Indiana has a couple. They have a Turner at 18 million. Heald's 21.2. It's a little pricey. But when you have those guys in the 9 to 18 range, it's really easy for any contender to slap together contracts. Totally. Um, Caruso is the best example of this. Caruso is, I think, you're, 9 million. You're going to trade the Bulls franchise player like that? <laughs> I know. Yeah, Caruso's 9 million. He's an unrestricted free agent in 2025. So for a team like Golden State, which I've discussed before, oh, yeah. like, ugh, we can add Caruso to this and <laughs> buy us some more time. So with Washington, the Kuzma, and I think Barton, who isn't as good of a player as Kuzma, but is also kind of in that range. Yeah. And they can go a variety of ways. They could go the mother load trade with Beal if the Lakers were willing to wait. By the way, the Knicks are another team. Now, I don't know. The Knicks have reinvented themselves as, a, as an offensive force with the Quentin Grimes. Um, but the Beal is another one. Like if they wanted to take a monster swing at a free agent guy, I would guess Washington is going to blow it up. So that would be our first one. The next one would be Chicago. Yeah. Who should blow it up. Oh my gosh. Now they can't trade Zach Levine until January 15th. They're 11 and 18. The New Orleans game, I think, um, no, I'm sorry, the Minnesota game. Minnesota put 150 <laughs> points on that. That was kind of a blow it up. Uh, With no towns, statement. no towns, no go bear for that game. Brutal. Although it looks like Edwards has finally played himself in shape. Congratulations to Anthony Edwards. You're finally looking good. So they have uh, Vucevic at 22 free agent. They have Patrick Williams, who's under contract for less than eight. They have Caruso and then DeRozan. They could make the most trades. I made up a whole bunch of trades for them a couple weeks ago where it was like DeRozan and Vucevic to the Lakers and Zach Levine to the Knicks and Caruso to the Warriors. <laughs> the thing with them, they have Orlando has their top four. Yep, top four protected, protected first. first pick. Yeah. So there's no guarantee, right, that they could you know, potentially save their own pick, but they'd give themselves a better chance if they bottomed out now. And if you look at it, there's only like maybe four teams that are definitely going to bottom out, right? San Antonio, Detroit, Houston, probably Charlotte would, I I can't imagine even getting LaMelo back will make them that, that much better. I would say Charlotte, although they did beat the Kings last night. They've had some good games. So Chicago, they know they have a chance to at least be the fifth worst and maybe get in the fourth worst. And you're looking at a little less than a half to keep that top four. Um, Those are very different things, now. though. Like the fifth versus fourth worst when you have the top four protected pick. Like that, that's an agonizing decision. And that that's where the, like that side of this gets really interesting. And maybe the timing of a potential Bulls deal matters as much as anything. For everything we've outlined, like the, the advantage of being the first mover in this market is not just that you get the potential Lakers picks or whatever, like the biggest bounty is on the board or the best prices, or or really you're just the one team selling when so many teams want to buy right now, but also you're just going to lose games faster. And Chicago's losing plenty of games as it is, but if they trade one or two of their core guys, I think the bottom's going to fall out really, really fast. And they're, they're going to get right in the thick of that tanking race in a way that maybe you feel okay about, about your top four odds. Well, and they have to get rid of Vucevic too, because he's, he could be, even though he's a declining asset, he could be just confident, what, yeah. once a week, that that could be the difference between being the seventh worst team and the fourth worst team. 
the Vooch trade Ugh. really is a disaster. And Very it tough. was a disaster anyway from the moment Franz Wagner turned out the way he did and the fact that they have another top four protected coming. But just that Vooch just hasn't been that good for him. And it seems like, you know, I like if Utah, let's say Utah was going for it. Haral Bob and I talked about this a couple weeks ago. And Utah was like, we'll get you know, Chicago's like, we'll give you Vucevic for Olenek and another piece. And if you're Utah, you're like, we'd much rather have Olenek at 12 million a year than Vucevic at 22 at this point. And that's not where he was two years ago. So I think, I think that's an issue. And then DeRozan, I think, I wouldn't say DeRozan, as, as good as I think he is, I'm not sure he's a guy that fits on to every team. He's a little bit of an unusual player, right? If you're a team that really prides, you know, ball spacing or your upbeat team or whatever, I'm not positive he fits in. But I do like the fit of him on the Lakers. As weird as that would sound, like, you know, the, that team needs three-point shooting. He's not a three-point shooter. But just like that grind it out when Davis comes back with LeBron, half-court offense, vets, I do like that fit for him. Anywhere else you would see for him that you would just like? I mean, that's the kind of spot. Like, uh, first of all, I I applaud your willingness to will this trade into existence of getting DeRozan <laughs> to the Lakers because it really does seem more likely by the day that that's something that could happen. And there's there's reporting today in the Athletic about you know some unease in Chicago in terms of the internal dynamics of the team and Zach Levine's position and like how all these pieces are fitting together. And that's obviously bearing out on the court. But in terms of DeRozan destinations, what you want is who are the teams who are struggling in half court offense. The Los Angeles Lakers are at the absolute top of that list in terms of teams that can be a good defense, certainly when they have AD, although that's now its own question mark. They can be a really good transition team, but they need someone like DeRozan to be a workhorse in the half court, to be grinding out pick and roll and ISO in limited space, which is something he's been very good at doing basically his entire career. And he can make, he can make gold of those possessions. And so I love him as a floor raiser more than a ceiling raiser for most teams, but I mean, the, the Lakers need a new floor very badly. You know, they they need that kind of safety that comes with a player like him. Well, let's jump ahead to the Knicks because I think that's a good DeRozan destination. Yeah. You put him with Brunson, who's this old school, you know, just playoff type of guard. And then Rando, who's a little bit of an unusual player too. And then you put DeRozan with them basically in that two-guard spot, which they've been floating around on. I just think that would be a really hard team to play. And I don't know if Barrett, Barrett, they have some issues because he's a poison pill guy. Yeah. But you can also get creative with that. If that team, if you're trading, like if Chicago trades other guys and they cut some salary, maybe it's a little bit easier. But I just like that. I don't think the Knicks are that far away. 17 and 13. I have them as number 12 on my board right now, which I couldn't believe as I was doing the teams. Um, defensively, they starting to feel a little bit more like a tips team. I think they're fun to watch. I think Brunson's been awesome for them. He's been great. And I, I, I'm honestly not surprised. Are you? Were, you? were you like, oh my God, I wonder if Brunson's going to be good in the Knicks? Like, I was all in on Brunson. I felt like we got enough of a sample size with him in Dallas. I was still a little surprised that people didn't realize how important he was to Dallas last year, just in a variety of ways. Um, but if you had one more playoff score to that team, I don't know, that East is after, after the top two, I just feel like it drops. I think what makes them tough to read is they've been playing great lately especially like you look over the last like 15 games or so, their starters have been one of the best high usage lineups in the NBA. That's a that's a great sign in terms of if you're like banking on what this group is moving forward, it's hard to give that up. It's hard to give up. You look even just recently, 
in this game against the Pacers this week, I think that's as good as Randall and Brunson and Barrett have all played at the same time. And so you're like, okay, this is finally clicking. This is finally here. And so either you're thinking trade to bring someone in to get better and potentially disrupt that very precarious balance you're starting to build, or do we really trust that that balance is real? Like, is this something that is going somewhere where you would be dissuaded from trading away Julius Randle down the line or making some other kind of shakeup? Like, for as good as the Knicks have been, and like, this is a... This is a harsh thing to say for a team that's on a win streak, but like I just still don't think... Th- this still feels like a team that needs to be reimagined to me, even with as well as they're playing, mm. even with as good as they've been defensively. Like, You need to be doing one of two things. Like, Do you trust this team to be good and stable long-term, or do you trust them to compete for a championship right now? And I think they're closer to the former than the latter, but I don't really trust the long-term prospects of this group either. Well, what's fun about them for somebody like in the DeRozan salary range, they got Rose at 14.5. Yep. Basically an expiring. And then Reddish at six. So I'm already at 21. I'm already like one more contract I can just get DeRozan. I don't really have to touch anybody good. They have a lot of picks. They have their own first for the next seven years. They have protected first from Washington walking Detroit. They have a top 10 protected first from Dallas. So they could just throw some stuff without really touching Toppin or any of their guys that are playing for them and then save the other stuff for a second trade if they wanted to. I, uh, I'm i a little more bullish on the Knicks adding a piece because it, not even like for whether you and I think it's a good idea. I just feel like the guys that run that team, they're in year three. It's kind of a shit or get off the pot thing with Tibbs. Sure. And I think you kind of have to find out. Now, the way this can go wrong is the way it went wrong for Chicago, right? Where they're the same thing. Ooh, we're a little shit off, get her the pot. All right, let's go get Vucevic. And now you see where that went. Maybe they miscalculated that. In this case, I do feel like you can get somebody good without really touching who you have. And I think the fans want it. Like, I think, you know, I think what one of the things they have going for them is even if they can try to be a top five team in the East, and get some home energy for these games. And they've unlocked Randall is the most important thing that they did. I don't know what's going to happen with Barrett. He's been up and down. Every time I watch him, he either looks terrible or he looks pretty good, but he doesn't look like the guy from last year. But Randall does not look like the guy from last year. Randall is is back pretty close to the guy from two years ago, right? He's had some really good stretches. And like there were points defensively where you could really zero in on what he wasn't doing or being out of position and like really pick at that. I do think he's been better. I do think, I mean, obviously, collectively, they've been so much better defensively. And if they can, you're right, like you are are right if they can get a little bit more punch, they can be a really solid team for this season. I'm just not sure if like that's what you want to push in for with a guy like DeRozan, for example, who what I love about DeRozan as a potential fit for them is he would be so good anchoring second units, like playing without the other, other stars for New York, without their other best players and really elevating some of those groups. Right. But the idea of, you know, even even given everything I said about him being very good in limited space, putting him alongside this starting lineup in the Quentin Grimes spot effectively, like Barrett cannot shoot. Julius Randle is pretty up and down in terms of what he gives you in terms of spacing. So you're you're really banking very hard on Jalen Brunson basically as being like a good spacer in in the situations where you actually want DeRozan driving your offense. And that's that's okay. It makes me a little nervous though. Can I give you R.J. Barrett's destiny in this situation? Please. 
I'd like to introduce you to the six man award. <laughs> now go try to win it. <laughs> hey, look at Tyler Hero and Jordan Clarkson. You're going to come in. Jordan Poole, 12 minutes a half. Just kind of go nuts for us. The Randall stuff since uh, after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. It's 27 and 10. It's a we'll bunch of 30 point games. Like he's, he's, uh, he's back in the mix. All right. We'll take a break and we'll hit these other teams. Hey, Santa Barkley's coming to town. He's delivering $20 million in gifts this holiday season to all FanDuel customers. Doesn't matter if you've been naughty or nice. St. Chuck has something for everyone. Just check your FanDuel app for no sweat, same game parlays, bonuses, and all sorts of stuff that will fill you with holiday cheer. I am going to be on Wednesday putting up my favorite NBA same game parlay of the week. We won last week, just FYI. Million dollar picks coming Thursday as well. We've been red hot. If you're new to FanDuel, now is the perfect time to sign up and remember to use promo code BS. The app is easy to use. They're always hooking you up with great promotions. And when you win, you'll get paid instantly. So see for yourself why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook. Get in the holiday spirit with $20 million in gifts from Santa Barkley. You must be 21 plus and present in select states only. Prize total dependent on customer participation. Wage requirements apply. Gifts awarded as non-withdrawable site credit or free bets. See FanDuel.com for terms and conditions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time. That's usually about. 5 o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. All right, coming back. Did we hit Chicago enough? Because Vucevic, Caruso, Levine, DeRozan, I, like I would be really scared to trade for Levine, as sexy of a name no. as that is, just because of the knee stuff. I don't 100% know what I'm getting, and I'm getting a guy who... We know he tore his ACL and we know he's had surgery on that same knee and he had the surgery before the contract. And I would just kind of want to see him look like the Levine from, you know, a year and a half, two years ago for 10, 12 games before I was willing to go nuts. So uh, that was the last thing on that. Indiana, I think they should blow it up in but a what, way What does that, blow it up mean for them? Blow it up means we're not going to be one of the four worst teams. We're probably not going to be a playoff team. And we know who we want to build around. Yeah. And there's a chance that we could get real assets back for Turner, who's a free agent in 2023, and Heald, who's a free agent in 2024. There's a chance they could just get good assets back for those guys and still be really fun to watch and still be good. The other guy they have who is tradable is McConnell because uh, Nemhart's come in. And then, like, McConnell's just disposable. McConnell's yeah. eight, eight million a year and is somebody that could play in a playoff series. So I, my guess is that I think they're a seller, but what do you think? Definitely a seller. I mean, they should take calls on all those guys constantly and be pitching them to other teams, frankly. Like, I, I just, for as good as Miles Turner has been, and he's been one of the best rim protectors in the league this season, it's been an incredible bounce-back campaign for him in a lot of ways. I just don't really see anything to be precious about here. Like you have yeah. what you have, which is Tyrese Halliburton, Benedict Matherin. That's your future. That's where you're ultimately going. 
Everything else is negotiable. So I, I would see no reason for them not to be a seller. Um, they're, they're far enough away. And those guys are young enough that you're really not looking to move in right now if you're the Pacers. Man, shots fired at Nemhard. You, you he's, mentioned Halbert and Matherin. <laughs> you could have like just give, given him a tiny bone there. He could be um, in the sidecar, you know, like he's, he's here. <laughs> Neesmith, Duarte. Uh, uh, they, have, they have two protected first round picks from Boston and Cleveland and they have all their own picks. And they also have the ability the moment that they just start benching dudes in the second half of the season, maybe they get to the top six. But I, I think some of these other teams are going to have too big of a lead on them to get into that bottom four. I think Turner has a lot of value. And you're also catching somebody who's playing for another contract, right? You always want those guys. So if you're renting somebody, I want to rent somebody who for the next five months has this vested interest to convince somebody to give him a hundred million for four years or whatever. It, the, the Golden State fit for you, mm. what is it? It's a every, all like the super smart basketball people I know, yourself included, all kind of cringe a little bit when they think at Turner and Golden State. Why is that? I think, I think Turner's a very good basketball player. I think he's very sharp playing in specific ways. Him as like a read and react flow guy, that's not really where I see his strong suits. And a lot of that's just like from a ball skill perspective. He's not a big, you want handling the ball a lot. He's not a guy you want necessarily running through a lot of dribble handoff. Um, and de yeah, defensively, you can see what he would what he could be for them. But he's also someone who's used to a specific kind of style and system and would lock them into a particular style of play in terms of, like, I, I don't really know that you want Miles switching out that much. Like, you want him tethered to the basket as much as you can keep him around there. And he is dynamic and he is talented and he is effective, but... I just think we've seen enough cases over the years of really talented, good players who have come to the Warriors and just do not fit with how they play. And I have some visions of that in terms of like a Miles Turner situation there. So you're thinking like Lakers playing next to Davis would be yeah. would be a good one. Yeah, it you feels like Davis like Davis healed. I guess my question is: Do the Lakers have to make both of those picks unprotected in that trade? Mm. I mean, that's. This is the call, right? Like this is the the negotiation that they're having effectively. It's like how the gradations of the protections and what you are willing to give up. And the Lakers, frankly, like I, I don't I don't know what they're doing if they're not ultimately willing to make those sacrifices. I'm not saying they should do it for just any player. I'm not even saying they should do it for Turner, but you have to be willing to do it. If you're the Lakers, like that is your job this season is to find a taker for those picks to find a way to justify your entire situation in being a LeBron James team. Like, what are you doing here if not that? 13 and 17. The Davis, I, I do this every year in the podcast with somebody who hurts their foot. And I think I've, I'm batting a thousand with this prediction where they're always like, yeah, it's going to be about a month. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. Because it, with feet, especially, it always seems like it's six weeks, eight weeks. And for weeks. bigs, for bigs, especially. for bigs, I just nobody's getting rushed back with a weird foot situation, and it and it doesn't seem like it's a sprained foot. It seems like it's worse. But and he's a LeBron. guy who, even when he comes back, even if he did come back at the earliest possible timeline, the way Anthony Davis was playing, you need absolute confidence and comfort with your body to move like that, to contest shots like that, to be as aggressive as he was going to the rim. I think it's possible that even when he comes back, we're not going to see that version of AD for a while. That he's going to have to kind of ease back into things. And so 
what we're talking about in terms of the overall scope of the Lakers season is they need help. They, they need help in a really bad way and they don't really have the option to go the other direction. Like they have to, they have to be pushing forward. Counter. If he's gone for six, eight, nine weeks, yeah. you're 13 and 17 anyway, and your team now, LeBron is the hub of the team who's in year 20, who has basically been missing 25 to 30 games the last couple of years. The moment he gets hurt, your season's over. So why am I giving away my entire future to hold the fort so that I can get Anthony Davis coming off a major injury, semi-major, and then old LeBron? And where am I going anyway? Am I as good as the top seven teams in the league with that nucleus? I and mean, you saw the other night. Now, the Boston game was really interesting for a variety of reasons. Darvin Ham says, fuck it. He plays Russian roulette with Davis and LeBron in the second half. Doesn't take him out. Davis gets hurt three nights later. Now, you could say, oh, that's a total coincidence. Or you could say they were putting a shitload of miles on Anthony Davis, a guy who has broken down over and over again in a variety of ways. And he broke down three days after that game. I remember this happened in New Orleans with Boogie Cousins when they had the Boogie-Anthony Davis combo and they were just riding those guys and Boogie was playing big minutes and then he got hurt. And I, I just think you have to be really careful with these big, a little bit injury-prone guys. So I already feel like they were pushing the RPMs to like seven. Davis already broke down and LeBron yep. is in year 20. If like if I was a consultant of the Lakers, I would be like, dude, the New Orleans pick is a sunk cost. Okay, first of all, like, no one should hire done. you of all people as a consultant to the no, Lakers. This is a great idea. They should There's hire a, me. I, a little I'll be totally honest with my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> if I was an objective consultant, I would be like, what are we doing? Yeah, that Pelicans pick is gone. We're not getting it back. We're not going to win the title with the team we have. Now we're going to ruin the end of the 2020s for what? We're, we're going to be better than Milwaukee. I think my counterpoint to the to that would be when was the last time that the Lakers' future was actually their draft picks in any way? Like the, this is not a team that drafts players and goes through like the long developmental process and like those are our guys. Not since Kobe, effectively. Like that was yeah. that was really like the standout case of that. But like LeBron wanted to come here, and it wasn't because the Lakers had draft picks, and AD wanted to be traded there. And it costs draft picks to do it, but like ultimately the young talent is not going to stand in the way of things like that. It's not going to stand in the way of other stars right now, even with everything as they are with the Lakers wanting to play there, wanting to be a part of that franchise. Like those are those are the facts of life for that organization. And picks mean different things to different teams. I don't think they mean that much to the Lakers, frankly. Well, you know who hopes you're right about eight other teams in the NBA. <laughs> they certainly do. They're Look, like those teams. I hope Rob Mahoney is right in that they're going to be dumb enough to trade those picks. And that's the thing, ultimately, like that's why you want to be the first mover is like you want those picks. You like you want to be able to take advantage of the fact that that pick means more to your franchise than it ever would to the Lakers, even if it's the number one overall pick. I just have serious questions about Davis sure. being able to stay healthy for eight, nine months a year. Yeah. And, you know, I know his agent was taught he was interviewed about it and was saying, like, do you if you look at each injury, each one was a fluke, he stepped on somebody's foot or whatever, but I just think if you're if you're relying on him the way the Lakers relied on him to get back in the race when they were like two and ten when he went on that run, he couldn't sustain it. He got he got hurt. He broke down. Some guys just aren't durable. Other guys you are. Giannis doesn't break down. You know, like Luca, as weird as he is and his slow motion, and I wouldn't say he's in the greatest shape ever. 
but he's durable. Like he plays big minutes and has a big usage rate. He doesn't get hurt. Absolutely. The fucking Joker never gets hurt. I mean, <laughs> the Joker just gains steam. He might be an alien. And Davis gets hurt over and over and over again. And I, I don't, at some point you got to look at him and be like, is this a fluke or is this who the guy is? I mean, the ultimate market inefficiency, move slowly, you know, like <laughs> glide right around out there, save your body. <laughs> and if you're Nikola Jokic, still score like 40 something points and grab damn near 30 rebounds a game. Unreal. Uh, now he's the favorite to win the MVP again, even though he's not the favorite, he should be pretty good. He means the most to his team. He has the best stats. And the reason cannot be he won the last two years. That's not the reason. The reason is this year. We're voting on this year. And if he plays 80 to 82 games again and does all the stuff he's doing, he's got to be in the conversation. I've been a I've been a Giannis guy to this point. And then I watched the Nuggets Wizards game last week where mm. the where the Nuggets scored 98 points in the paint. And it was just like how easy it looked for Jokic. All, I mean, he's been doing this stuff all season. This isn't an isolated thing, but the way he's just like spoon feeding Aaron Gordon at the basket, like everything, everything is so phenomenally simple when you have Nikola Jokic on the floor. And the virtues of that, I don't think they're properly captured because of how little he shoots right now. Like he just doesn't really care to shoot 20 times a game. And so he barely ever does, uh, where some of these other guys will go and go and go and rack up huge scoring totals because of it. But Jokic is unreal. Like I don't, I don't see a way to have that MVP conversation if he's not at least in the top three on your ballot. Like he has to be there. Yeah, and thirty game mark is at least time to start thinking like who are the who are the characters? Yeah. in the MVP play, and I think he was getting left out for a little bit, but now he's back. And listen, I say this every year. To me, part of the award is it's it's not just all the stats, what your stats are, even the on off stuff. Are you making your teammates better? Are they better because you're on their team? All of the guys he plays with are better because he plays with them. And that that's the case against Luca, in my opinion, to some degree. I don't, I'm not positive he brings out the best of all the guys he plays with sometimes. A lot of times they're just standing there watching him. It's the same thing as, you know, 17 Westbrook and 19 Harden. At some point, the guys on the team have to feel like, man, I'm, what a great situation I'm in instead of just feeling like spectators. Jokic, to play with that dude for a year has to be like the highlight of your career to be like, oh my God, it was so much fun. I just got layups and dunks and wide open threes. It was the best. Well, so. I will say this in defense of Luca, like those are totally different team models. You know, like, Totally I just, get it. I, I don't think Reggie Bullock running five more pick and rolls a game is a good thing for anybody. <laughs> and I say that with all due respect to Reggie Bullock, right. but like, Luca plays the way he does because the team is built for that. And he's very, very good at it. And that team should be better than it is. But I mean, they've been losing games for a whole variety of reasons we can get into if, the, if we want to. But uh, they're at an interesting crossroads themselves. Yeah, we're going to get to them in one second. Um, the Luca thing is interesting to me because I think LeBron's been somebody else like this too, where they're building specific types of teams for the strength of the awesome guy. But part of being an awesome basketball player should be pulling out the best out of whoever you play with. And I think that's where with those high usage rates are the guys like LeBron who like the specific type of teammates. Like why wasn't Malik, Malik Monk was pretty good on the Lakers last year. Yeah. But why wasn't he awesome on the, why wasn't he like he is on the Kings this year? And now people say, well, the stats are pretty similar. It's like actually the per 36, he's a little better on the, on the Kings. But just in general, like get those heat check guys like that. Anyway, that's a whole different discussion. D 
Dallas, I think, is pretty limited with what they can do. Yeah. It's a, it's it's wood. It's like they have all these contracts that nobody really wants. And um the Kyrie piece, if Brooklyn ever wanted to just say fuck it and get rid of Kyrie, maybe it's something like that, but we don't really need to talk about them. Miami is a team that's right around the Dallas record. Um, Dallas with a losing record, by the way. Miami's yeah. 16 and 15. It's weird. They have the Lowry piece. Lowry's at 30. And I think if they were going to upgrade, they could put together with him and Robinson, they could put together something, right? They could now, now you're in like the 50 million a year club if you wanted whatever. Lowry's 28.3 this year. Um, from a draft pick standpoint, they can trade this year's pick. They could potentially trade 27 and 29, and that's it. The Oklahoma City at 2025 pick. And they're just kind of middle of the road. I don't really know what to make of them, but I don't want to count them out either because we've seen when they're playing well, it's like, that looks like a playoff team. And then you watch the next way and they lose to one of the five worst teams in the league by 10. Yeah. Um, the Lowry piece would be the piece I would guess they would upgrade, but I don't know. What do you think? Do they limp along and just kind of hope the button turns on or do they get ambitious? I think they limp, limp along and some of that is... Their young guys are good enough that even if you did make drastic changes and try to get worse, for example, I don't know that you can get worse enough at this point. Like Bam Adebayo is really good. Tyler Hero, yeah. for all his flaws, still a very good player. So like tra like trading Jimmy Butler, something that radical, not really on the table. So you're looking at more Lowry level solutions. Or if, I mean, if you want to talk about you know trading some of the younger guys, you can have those talks too. But I kind of think they go with it and I'm honestly fine with it personally because I just categorically am not going to pull the plug on Jimmy Butler. Like that yeah. is a guy who is going to show up. I'm fine with that. I'm going to kick around and see if my team can can shore up a little bit. Like they're a team that could desperately use one or two more just like good role players and they could find those potentially. Or if you want to talk about places that might be willing to take on the risk of Zach Levine's knee, I would love to see Zach Levine with the Heat. Like he would be an awesome fit with what they do. But I kind of think they ultimately end up more or less in the range they are and probably end up being, you know, like maybe just squeak into the sixth seed and dodge the play-in and then they turn out to be like a pretty formidable playoff team that ultimately can't go all the way. The story of what this team is and has been, frankly. My favorite hypothetical trade that can't happen because Denver doesn't have the picks is Butler going to Denver for Porter and some firsts. And Denver doesn't have the first to pull it off. And Porter hasn't been able to stay healthy enough for long enough. But just in general, that would be such like a holy shit moment. Like, <laughs> oh my God, Jimmy Butler's going to be in the Nuggets with Jokic and Jamal Murray. <laughs> Jesus, what's going to happen? Are they locked in? But uh, unfortunately, that can't happen. I do wonder. I Like, Jimmy is definitely needs to be monitored, I think, the longer this team stays 500. As, as a trade candidate. As in anything, as just yeah. a, a quote, as a post-game <laughs> press conference guy, I just don't see him being a 500 guy at this point in his career. I think that guy, I think he wants to be in big playoff series. I think he wants to be in the finals again. And I don't think this is going to fly maybe two more weeks, but I, I, I'm just, I'm kind of watching. It's like a volcano. You just got to kind of stare at it from afar and you're like, oh, is that a little lava leaking out? What's going on there? Um. Atlanta. John Collins has now officially been available for three years. I think he celebrated yeah. his three-year anniversary of being available. 
This what do you get? What do you team. get for three years? Is that like a set of steak knives on the <laughs> yeah, trade market? I think, yeah, I think it's salt shakers. Um, they owe San Antonio. They're twenty five and twenty seven first. The Spurs could swap picks with them in twenty six. They have a top fifteen protected pick from Sacramento in twenty four for the Herder trade. That drops to top twelve and top ten. That's not nothing. They have uh, AJ Griffin if they wanted to get super creative. They have Jalen Johnson if they want to do a win now trade. Either of those guys thrown in with Collins. They got Bogdanovich, who's got a player option. Capella, who knows? I don't even know what this team needs because ultimately they haven't figured out the Trey Young piece of it yet. He had a good game last night. Um, but for the most part, has just not looked like Trey Young all year and doesn't yeah. hit threes anymore. And I think they thought Murray was going to solve some issues with that, and he has not. So to me, they are not a we need to jump the gun now team more a can we see in a month where we are team Dave? what do you think i think so i mean they've looked really bad when they've had guys out another team that's just not very deep anymore after they yeah. for example just like lost kevin herter so they had trouble when when john collins was out when dejounte murray was out when their best players have been on the floor they've been pretty good and the offense there's a lot to figure out like you're right about trey absolutely Frankly, we probably aren't talking enough about the fact that in the modern NBA, players do not get that kind of usage and shoot this badly basically ever anymore. Just is not a thing that teams are usually willing to allow. There's not that many guys with that much rope. Trey has been chronically inefficient this season. It's been a huge problem. But I think there's enough going on and there's been enough guys in and out that they're probably going to play a longer game. And certainly just after pushing in for Murray the way they did, they're a team that's only going to be more and more aggressive in that direction. This, like they're not going to bail on on the fundamental model that they have so much as yeah they'll trade John Collins yeah they'll they'll talk to you about Clint Capello whatever it is you want to do there but like they need to win like they need to be a good team I think they have they have the bones of one and you just have to hope that Trey can figure it out and that he and Dejounte can can sort out some of those kinks along the way I think we agree I think they're a wait and see potential buyer right now Trey Young twenty nine point three percent shooting from three. And that's seven a game. Unreal. His field goal percentage is down to 41. It was 46 last year. His free throws are up, which, which backs the eye test. Because to me, he's just not shooting well. But other than that, mm. he still seems like Trey Young. He's getting the line 8.6 times a game. So he's doing everything except just making shots. And I don't know. It, it could be a slump. It's only been 28 games for him. But that's a pretty long slump. But the thing we forget, we always forget with three pointers, like, you know, he is 58 for 198 from three, right? It's not a small sample size, but it's also not a big sample size. And no. he could go 15 for his next 30, and all of a sudden that looks pretty palatable. So and getting Bogdanovich back too is a big thing for them because without him, mm. they just like weren't hitting shots. Like it was AJ Griffin hitting threes. DeJounte Murray has been okay from that, but like everyone else has been missing. So just having another spacer, not to mention ball handler, guy who can play with the second unit, like all that stuff is valuable, but they just need room. And if Trey's not hitting, they really need room. All right, so we think we wait and see. Th these, let's do Toronto quick. Yeah. I think they should be a seller. They're 13 and 18, and I just don't like their look. I don't think yeah. whatever they have going, it's just... The pieces don't fit. And we've all rooted for basketball teams where you know it after a little while. Remember the, the 2019 Celtics were like this, the last Kyrie season. 
where it's just like, this isn't going to happen this year. These guys, something's off. And Toronto has been a something off team. The reason I mentioned this, they could, they could go almost like what Portland did last year. And I think Portland's model last year of kind of tanking and rebooting, but not giving up on this subsequent year, I think was they kind of created a model I'd never really considered before. Yeah. The McCollum trade, but that led to eventually the Jeremy Grant trade. They got some pieces back. And then in nine months, they were in a better spot, but they also hurt their team. So they got a really good lottery pick. And I could see Toronto doing something like that. And the guy I'm looking at is Van Vliet, who's got a player option in 23, who I think would be a really interesting piece for a team I'm about to throw at you. Um, but I wonder, like, could that be a piece and could Ananobi be the other one who's been a monster on defense yeah. and who's pretty cheap? Then Siakam I mean, would be the gold standard at 35.5 if you wanted to get really ambitious. But what do you think about them? I mean, that's what's good about the Raptors' position is if you wanted to start trading guys, Fred Van Vliet can play anywhere. Like, he can play alongside other ball-dominant guards. He can be your lead point guard if you have other playmakers. Like, he can fit. OG Ananobi can slot in pretty much anywhere. He's one of the best defenders in the NBA. Pascal Siakam is as versatile as forwards can get. Clearly, he can carry a really high usage load and role and, and like be a really important part of your team as he's been for Toronto this season. And he can also scale down into other spots as well. So... I like I love the flexibility they have as far as like having those conversations. Me too. I think I'm I'm in agreement that something is fundamentally off there. And some of that to me is like I just for a team that is as long and as versatile defensively as they are, I don't trust their defense really at all. Like they're a team that That's been the shocker, right? That I think they're yeah. giving up more points than they've scored this year, but I, it's really easy to score on them in the last five minutes of a game. And in, in macro, like you zoom out and the defense is okay by most measures, but then you'll watch and like Tobias Harris looks unstoppable or Jordan Poole has like 43 points. You know, like the, these things happen with a frequency that is a little bit unnerving to me if I'm thinking about like, do I trust this team? Like, is this a team that I trust to figure it out? And I'm getting more and more to the point with Toronto where I don't. And I'm not necessarily even saying that like they could make a trade that's kind of lateral and get a little bit better and just vault into the playoffs because all the other pieces on their team are already so good, at least the core guys. like They might not be a buyer or a seller so much as just like rearranging the deck with, with good talent. I wouldn't trade Ananobi if I was them. But I would really think about Van Vliet, yeah. who I like. And just like, one of the great things about Van Vliet is he's cheap, right? He's 21.2. So people could put contracts together you know, totaling 17, 18 million, you could get them, which brings us back to the Lakers. They could get Van Vliet without trading Westbrook. They could just do, oh, here's Beverly and here's Kendrick Nunn and our 2027 unprotected first for Van Vliet. And if you're Toronto, you have to think about that because you're going nowhere anyway as it is. You get this great asset and then you could still trade in and open a, in a separate deal. The other one I was thinking for Van Vliet is my favorite buyer. Get ready. Take a breath. <laughs> I'm scared. The magic of Orlando. Oh, boy. Why are we I doing just think that? I just think they're good. <laughs> they're, they're like 65 to 1 to win their division. They're in the division with Miami and Atlanta. They're like five games back. Even they have the six-game winning streak. And you can look at it from afar and be like, I can't believe the Celtics lost to these dudes. Well, I watched the Friday game 
And then I watched the fourth quarter on Sunday. Like Orlando's just like pretty good. They have two forwards who can score and make plays and create. And in the end of games are really hard to defend. They have weird players that have been playing well, like Bull Bull. Um, I don't know. Like if if you just put Van Vliet on that team, could that team be a seven or an eight seed? They have so many picks. They have all their picks. They have that Chicago pick we mentioned. Um, they have a top five protected pick from Denver in 25 that rolls over. They could kind of get ambitious and grab a player without really sacrificing anything. And if I were them, I would think about it. I just think there's some kind of rule against trading any member of the Tampa Raptors back to Florida. Like you cannot make Fred Van Vliet <laughs> go back there. You just can't do it. It's very, it's very mean. <laughs> and from, from Orlando's perspective, I do, like, I do think he would fit there. Like he, he fits very seamlessly and easily into the way they play it, to what they have. And, and certainly in terms of everything that you would give up, having Van Vliet at the point in terms of size, like you have all this length behind him. I'm just reluctant if I'm the Magic. I agree that they're pretty good right now. I just don't want to take anything away from the ecosystem and the young prospects you already have to the point that I'm actually okay with them having guards who are kind of constantly injured and in and out of the lineup. I'm fine with that because that just means like Franz and Paolo and Bowl have the ball all the time. They get yeah. to, to try and read and do things all the time and like develop their games in that way. And that's what your team is going to be. Like the strength of your huge passer, like playmaking and ball handling forwards and bigs. That's what I want my team to be. And that's where I want to get the reps right now. So like, I'm, I'm cool with just being like a cool, fun, pretty good team. What about bringing a nice pro in like Van Vliet? He's great guy, underdog. Uh, Orlando loves him. I have news. Orlando on FanDuel has dropped to 35 to one from the division. (laughs) There's been some action. (laughs) I may have been involved. Um, I, I am of the opinion with when you have young teams where you clearly know like, oh my God, we really have something with these two guys. And then the bull yeah. bull thing is this weird discount Wimbanyama wild card. I would put a good guard with them. I think it just makes them better. I also thought they should have traded for Mitchell last summer. I thought that was the wild card mm. Mitchell team where they basically could have put together the same deal Cleveland did. But I like the idea of some sort of veteran on that team. And Orlando, the other thing with them, they have Terrence Ross at 11 and a half. They have Harris 13 this year and next year. Fultz 16 and a half, 17. They have that Isaac contract that is really fun to trade because it's like basically you can get rid of it after next year. You can buy it out for cheap. So they're also in the hunt for like a, a Bradley Beal type would be the other thing if yeah. they wanted to, if they wanted to get more ambitious. I am all in on Paolo and Wagner. Like I, I think those guys have a chance to be really, really special as a combo. I'm so impressed by both of them. The thing with Paolo, I, I, maybe it just wasn't there in Duke or I didn't notice it or it was the way college is, but I can't believe how fast his first step is. Yeah. Like his first step, he's almost falling over. He's going so fast. And I was watching all these Celtics dudes who you would think on paper, the Celtics have all of the guys you would want to guard somebody like him. He was going by him. So... That made me think like, shit, could this team be like a frisky eight seed? <laughs> like, why not? The Magic beat the Celtics. Let's get them in. Like, clearly, clearly they're contenders <laughs> beat at this twice. point. <laughs> beat them twice in three days. Tatum didn't play the second day. Anyway, I do think, I, I do think with Paolo, uh, with Paolo, like he, you're right that he is a guy who, for some reason, looks even bigger and even faster at the NBA level than he did in college. 100%. 
it's it's so bizarre. And like I'm not we can't we're not gonna pretend he's unheralded like this was the number one pick, but he just looks physically dominant against NBA pros in a way I was not expecting. I was not prepared for his speed on the perimeter. And if he showed this in college and I missed it, my bad. But um, this is the NBA and you just shouldn't be going by people like this. And then Wagner just knows what the fuck he's doing. Really good player. It's really fun that his brother has become like a decent asset for them too. You know, I love when uh, when brothers play together. Uh, Utah is the other one. I guess we can end with them. Um, you could tell me they're a buyer. You could tell me they're a seller. They have a kajillion picks, but they also have the most tradable guys out of anyone in the league. Olenek at 12.8. Vanderbilt at 4.4. I, I wouldn't trade him. Connolly, 22.7. Clarkson, 13.3. Beasley's a free agent at 15.6. Even Sexton at 16.5. Just all guys who could play in a playoff series, especially Vanderbilt. Like, and you think like if you're Minnesota and if you're a Minnesota fan, you gave up all that for Gobert and then you're watching what uh, what Kessler's done the last... Have you seen Kessler the last couple of games? Yes. Like, Kessler's I'm, like legitimately <laughs> good. It's not like, oh, this guy has something. He's like, no, this guy's an NBA player. Incredible shot blocker already. Yeah. And if, if he can just get like 10% better as a finisher, just like a little bit more consistent in terms of just catching and dunking on guys, like getting good position he's going to be a problem. Like he's going to be a really good starting center for a long time. And like, that's the range we're talking about is floor, very good contributor and role player for a team. Ceiling could be a very dominant defensive player potentially. So I'm, I'm curious to see where he falls on that spectrum. They need to send him to Zubat's camp to <laughs> learn good, how to just roll camp. to the basket and just like, just whirl around on smaller guys and do little three footers. That's the thing. Do not train with Akeem Olajuwon. You will never be with. You will no. never be Akeem Olajuwon. Train with Avica Zubats. Like that's, Zubats is the guy. Learn the ways. Teach me. Teach me how to do the three foot whirl arounds. So Utah seventeen and sixteen, and the West is just completely bizarre. And now we have the Warriors. How, who knows how long Curry's going to be out? Yeah. And the Lakers, who everybody thought was just going to pass Utah and Sacramento. Now who knows? And they might be a playoff team probably too much time has passed for them to be in that bottom five and be in the Wembenyama sweepstakes. I, I think it's yeah. a tough one. I I don't know what I would do. This is the only team I had that I would be like, I honestly don't know what I would do. This is a wait. Let's wait a month and then see what we got. My gut is you have a good team and you have players who genuinely like playing together. At least it seems to be. And this might be like a little bit of a precious thing to say, but I would be really reluctant to give that up. Like Me you too. have, and, and you have enough draft equity that you don't have to bottom out. Like you can package that stuff together. You could just draft really good players. Like you can be good enough down the line with just with what you have in the door right now without getting your own very high level pick this season. We call that the small market dream. Don't just give that up for no reason. Like if there's a great, great deal to be had, sure. But I'm not, I'm not kicking in those doors. Like I'm not really looking for those options if I'm Utah, I don't think. Plus multiple white guys for their fans to root for. Okay. Kessler, <laughs> Olenek. I'm going to back away from the microphone Marketed. very slowly. <laughs> um, I, the fact that Kessler is actually good, I didn't think that trade could get any worse for Minnesota. Just in general. It's tough. Um, holy mackerel. Where you have the Vanderbilt-Kessler combo for Utah is probably better in a lot of ways than what, what Utah had with uh, with Gobert. Not I a lot think of those, they're waiting to see. 
Yeah, some of those big deals, like, and we were talking about the Vucevic one earlier. They hurt, man. Like you, you see, you see Franz Wagner pop. If you're a Bulls fan, like that has to hurt. You see Walker Kessler playing this way, that has to hurt. Like I know the Wolves want to win now. I know they have a lot of motivation and a lot of talent to potentially do that, but ugh, it, it it hurts to give up players who are that talented and who can be that that helpful immediately. The list of Utah draft capital is just staggering. You're right. I mean, they could just wait and see. They don't even really need one, but yeah, but they have so many picks coming. And then who the hell knows what happens with Minnesota? Yeah. They might have stumbled into something awesome. All right. So we think to wrap this up, the seize the day, we have to jump on this market and start it before everybody else would be Washington and Chicago. Yeah. Get out there. Get out there ahead of it. Make these things happen. Will it into existence? Like you need to be first on that market. And you don't, you wouldn't put Toronto in there. I think Toronto can be more patient just because they're got, they have so many viable trade candidates that they can play the market against, against one another in that way. You know, it doesn't even have to be like, what offers can we get for Fred Van Vliet? It's, we have this offer for, for Van Vliet. We have this offer for Ananobi. We have this offer for Siakam. Like there's so many routes forward. I think they can be more patient. Also, they won the title four years ago. They can get as wacky as they want. And then the seize the day buyer. I think it's the Knicks. And you <sighs> think it's who? You still think it's the Lakers? I think it's the Lakers okay. for sure. I think I think the Lakers are the most obvious buyer. Um, beyond like Atlanta would be a buyer if they had more things to trade, but I, I don't think they have a lot of yeah. a lot of equity left in that regard. But I th- I think the Lakers are it, and New York. I mean, man. I, like if we can keep the good vibes going, I'm all for it. I'm just I'm still skeptical. Even after all of these wins, even after this this great surge, like I'm I'm I just can't fight that nagging thought in the back of my head. Put that on the whiteboard, Tom Thibodeau. Rob Mahoney, <laughs> I'm still skeptical. Just write it on there, a magic marker. I would be flattered to be on a dartboard in someone's office someday. So you know, whoever we need to trash on this podcast to make that there, happen, man. let's do You're it. Getting there. You can hear Rob on the Ringer NBA show. You can read him on the Ringer. Dot com. Excellent website. Good to see you as always. Thanks, Bill. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I understand that some things you just want to keep private. Maybe it's something you don't want anyone to know, or maybe you think it's something minor, so why bother? But if you keep everything bottled up, if you let those emotions sit there and fester, it could be really, really bad for you. Sometimes it depends on what kind of family you're from. Like my dad's family is one of those, they bottle everything up, bottle everything up, and then they all just get mad at each other. Listen, talking things through is more helpful than you think. If you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend some therapy. Think about the things you can get out of therapy. First of all, a sounding board. You can learn better coping skills. You can learn how to set some boundaries, maybe how to empower yourself a little better day to day. And if you want to give therapy a try, well, I have an answer. Better help. A convenient and flexible way since it's entirely online right now. It's easy to get started too. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Bill Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, award-winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. 
The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others, real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60-day money-back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S. Simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. All right, Seth Wickersham is here from ESPN. He is one of the most connected NFL reporters slash feature writers we had. Just wrote a great piece about Andrew Luck. How long did you spend on that Andrew Luck piece? <laughs> how much money or how much time? <laughs> <laughs> how much time? Um, I visited him in February of last year for four days straight in May of last year. Um, it was, and then in August, and then in September in California. So. I interviewed him, I think, eight times total over wow. the course of that time. Why do you think he wanted to tell his story? He was so reclusive. What what made him kind of say, um, screw it? Yeah, I think that they always want to talk at the end of the day. They just always do. And I think that getting into the Hall of Fame, the College Football Hall of Fame, he knew that people would come circling for him. And we had been in contact for years at that point. And um, I think that, you know, because of those reasons and because I extreme ski, apparently he, he decided to go with me. Wow. I mean, it is one of the great NFL what ifs of the last 10 years, right? Cause that Colts oh, no roster doubt. was pretty good. And you figure wait, they would have made at least one Super Bowl if he had been able to stay healthy. That's not why we brought you on though. We brought you on to talk New England Patriots stuff and, NFL owner stuff, but we'll start with uh, Belichick and Kraft and Belichick, who is 70 years old. I did a thing on Sunday with Sal about just old NFL coaches, pretty rare for any of them to be successful, even once they hit their 60s and him and Pete Carroll, the two oldest. He has now, this is year three without Tom Brady. And if you throw in the last Tom Brady year, it's been really four years since the Pats have been a relevant contender. There's some smoke now with Belichick and Kraft and how this is going to go. And and we should talk about Kraft first and then tie it into Belichick. Kraft, getting up there in age, won six Super Bowls, a hero in Boston. It's kind of the man. That's fading a little bit. The Celtics now coming in. The Patriots pretty much look like a 500 team the rest of the way. They don't have an identifiable star. Um, from the craft standpoint, how do you how do you think he's looking at all of this? Yeah, I think there's definitely smoke. And I don't know what it was about that Monday night game against the Arizona Cardinals, but it really started to flare out around then. Um, you had Peter King kind of writing about, you know, the idea that Belichick might end up breaking the all-time wins record for a team that's not the Patriots if things didn't change. You had Greg Bedard, super connected, great reporter writing about it. Tom Curran, exactly same type of guy. Albert Breer talking about it. And, you know, even little old me, I started to hear things from people inside the building. And I just think that, like, I, again, I don't know what it was about that game, but I think that, like, Kraft, I think he's kind of itching to kind of know what next year is going to look like. I don't know whether he's written off this year or not, but um, it seems like he wants some clarity on 
how things are going to be different next year because things haven't gone very well this year at all, as you know. And I think that Bill's genius throughout his entire career is that he lets situations play out. So I don't think he's in some huge rush to announce to the world that Matt Patricia, you know, is not going to be calling the offense next year. And so I don't know what that means for the future. I do think, and I wrote about it in my book, that, you know, the way that that Bill treats Kraft, um, you know, has not always been well-received. I remember, remember when Nick Casario was there, Kraft used to have to go to Nick Casario to find out was go, what was going on with the team because Belichick wouldn't tell him. And sometimes Nick didn't even know because Bill wouldn't tell him either. <laughs> right. And so... Um, I think that like at this point, Kraft's 81 years old. I think he is getting itchy. And, um, you know, I don't think that Belichick is in any hurry, way, shape or form to announce how things are going to be different next year. I don't think Bill's job's on the line. But if Robert and Jonathan want changes to the way that the personnel department is run or the way the coaching staff is run and Bill doesn't want to make those, then I think, you know, something could happen. I think that's still a long shot, but I think that like that's the scenario where I could see a parting of the ways after this season. And I still think it's like pretty rare that would happen. Yeah, I think it's a little more realistic than rare, but let's go backwards because you've done the best reporting about this. This all starts with Garoppolo <laughs> and Kraft basically being all in on Brady and Belichick being in on, I just want to be competitive and good every year and do what's best for the team. Brady leaves. Brady goes to win a Super Bowl with Tampa Bay. That's not going great. Belichick does the free agent spending spree, which um, was still one of the most uncharacteristic things. I think of the of the past 20 plus years with the Pats, just he never did that. That's the only time ever that he was like, fuck it, and treated it like he was a guy in a fantasy auction or something. Spent all this money on all these guys. And I think the Pats have the most committed to receivers and tight ends this year and somehow don't have a number one target, you know? So you have that, that doesn't work. And, you know, I, I, I wonder if I'm crap, I'm trying to look at it from the crafts perspective, right? Where they feel like they had such this great partnership and maybe it was a little uneasy at times with Brady and Belichick, whatever. But now they're like, it's gonna be 2023. We made the soup. The last Super Bowl was, you know, February, 2019, basically. Um, how how long do we have to be beholden to this guy who barely even keeps us in the loop on anything? That's about, like, ultimately, Kraft's got to look at this and say, this is my team. I can't just turn the rest of my life over to this guy who doesn't even tell me what he's doing. So I don't know how that part plays out. Yeah, you're right. I mean, remember that great scene in um, The Two Bills where Kraft just kind of stares at the camera and he was like, imagine managing those two, talking about Parcells and Belichick. I mean, two assholes. Yeah. And I'm not like saying that Belichick himself has called both him and Parcells an asshole. So I'm not like speaking out of turn there. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that it would get old. And to think that like they've been married now for 22 years, like this industry is not built, the personalities who are successful in it, it's just not built for that type of longevity. Yeah. That said, think about how much impact Belichick has had on Kraft's legacy, his life, you know, his personal wealth. I mean, like, how could you move on from someone like that, even if, you know, he's not communicative, even if right. he finds the, you know, both Robert and Jonathan, and I'm, 
projecting here a little bit, but kind of annoying and feels like he doesn't have to justify anything to anybody. And, um, you know, how do you move on from someone like that? But yeah, I mean, like you said, there is a lot of smoke coming out of that owner suite at this point, even if like I have a hard time truly believing that they would ever move on from Bill or even create a situation where he'd want to move on himself. But I think there's plugged in people who also would, would disagree with that and push back on it a little bit. Yeah. And maybe part of this is the Brady thing, which is another thing that has gained a lot of smoke and it really kicked into full gear when he went to the craft birthday party on a Friday night. <laughs> right. and look, there's a scenario where Belichick leaves, Brady comes in, Bill O'Brien comes in as the coach, <laughs> like somebody that's like a Brady guy, right? Bill O'Brien yeah. would be perfect. Bill O'Brien, by the way, you know, I think was a, was a pretty good head coach. I think the problem came with him having the front office power, but worst case scenario, I think for Belichick is if Kraft is just like, we can't do this coaching staff again. This can't just be your cronies, um, cheap, lower level guys and people you're related to cannot be the coaching staff. Like this Patriots coaching staff, the only guy who would ever even have a chance to get poached for another coaching job is Gerard Mayo, the linebackers coach. And that's a name that's been floating around too. The, the thing with Kraft, he talks to a lot of people. Like he's one of those sounding board guys. He'll go, and it could be anybody. Like I know a couple of people that he's talked to this year. One during the Zappy Mac Jones thing where Kraft loves Zappy. Kraft was just going around saying, I wish Zappy was a starter. I think he's good. I, I, I wish Bill would play Zappy over Mac. And he would just tell that to random people. He would tell it to people at dinner. He would tell it to, you know, other people in Boston who are the, either owners or, you know, other types of people. He kind of doesn't give a shit anymore. So that's why this stuff comes out. And I think, you know, the other piece of this is somebody like Mayo, who I think that name has been floating around. And part of it is like Kraft telling people, hey, what do you think of Gerard Mayo? Just kind of get getting their feel for it. So that's why I think this, I think there's a lot of smoke right now in a whole bunch of different directions. And maybe this is how the Belichick era was destined to end, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it always seems like that these things end poorly, right? And remember, Kraft is yeah. still not in the Hall of Fame yet. So any decision he makes is going to impact his legacy with that constituency, which he cares about deeply. But let's go back to Brady. I mean, so The Athletic, a couple of weeks ago, kind of had a speculation that, you know, what if Brady were to return to New England? And that picked up a lot of steam. Um, Barnwell wrote, I think, Monday, you know, about the future quarterback situations for a bunch of teams. And he mentioned either Garoppolo or Brady coming back to New England as a scenario. Yeah. And who was it? It was Brown who who liked it on Instagram, I think. <laughs> you know, mm. one of the own Patriots. I mean, it's like, is that how bad things have gotten with Mac Jones? But my point of view, I cannot see Tom Brady coming back there. I think that like, yeah. Really? You, good... So you think no chance? I think that like, if things don't work out with Mac, I think that Kraft will try to see if it's if it's something that Tom would consider. I mean, I do think from Tom's point of view, I think if you asked him right now and he answered honestly, if he was going to play next year, he'd probably say yes. But I truly don't know if he knows. At least that's what I've been told is that he hasn't truly decided yet. And maybe it's kind of the opposite of last year where last year around now there was a lot of smoke that he was going to walk away. And then he announced it. It was kind of a surprise to everybody. I think right now, He's not feeling like he has to walk away, but maybe in February, he'll kind of look at his family situation, got a new dynamic now where the, you know, the kids are now children of divorced parents. 
And, yeah. you know, maybe playing in San Francisco isn't as appealing as it was a couple years ago for him. But in terms of New England, I mean, in addition to the fact that he's, even though he and Bill are on good terms, I think that they're a little bit like, I don't think they're a divorced couple that's itching to remarry. I think that they're staying civil for the sake of everybody. But even if, like, they were to make it something that Brady would be interested in, who are his coaches? Is he running the offense? Like, he's well, that's, not going to That would bring in to... the Bill O'Brien thing, right? That's <laughs> I think he would have to bring somebody with him. He'd have to, but, I mean, is Belichick itching to have Bill O'Brien on his staff? I mean, I think he probably could have done that this year if he wanted. Yeah. And he's not. I think that Bill O'Brien of 2022 is different than the offensive coordinator of 2009, for instance. Um, So I just think that like, it's one of those things that sound interesting now. And I think that by February, my gut tells me that Brady's going to walk away. I don't have any inside info on that, but like, I just can't see it happening. But like, you know, if there was a situation where somehow Kraft had to move on from Bill this off season and Bill ends up somewhere else, I don't know where he would go, but um, you know, maybe Washington, you know, because he has so much familiarity with that area if they, you know, end up with a new owner. Um, but, um, you know, would he bring in Bill O'Brien as a way to tempt Brady to come back for one more try? Yeah. Why not, man? I don't know. That seems yeah, part, like a lot of ifs, but why not? Yeah. Part of the problem with the Belichick scenario is I don't think he would retire this year. No. I would, I, I said on Sunday night, I kind of wish he would because I think this Patriot season has been embarrassing. And I think if he, 15 years ago, if you put him in a time machine and showed him everything that happened this season, he'd be like, oh my God, I will definitely retire before any of this happens. <laughs> and you you could say, well, it's not his fault, right? It's, you know, he's got a coaching staff, the players it is totally fault. work. But it is his fault because he it hired is. the coaching staff. Like, yeah. it, like this team offensively is poorly prepared week after week after week. They make really dumb mistakes. They make dumb mistakes all over the place. I didn't even talk on Sunday night about how bad the block punt was where the ball got snapped and they, they the guys didn't even know the ball was getting snapped. This is stuff that never used to happen with Belichick. And I think, you know, if the two indefensible things that I just don't understand, the free agent spending spree, which was just out of character for him, and then um, this year with the coaching staff, the fact that the Patricia Judge thing, which everybody and the Pats have some of the best beat reporters, I think, of any team. And all of them were going to the scrimmages and the practices every day and going, wow, this team looks like an absolute dumpster fire. This is really bad. I've never seen a more disheveled Pats offense. And it's been that way the whole year. They have no idea what they're doing offensively. And for him not to fix that, I think is crazy. So I, my, my guess is the crafts. I think Jonathan is a piece of this too, because he's getting this team at some point, right? Um, they're going to probably tell him like, you got to fix the coaching staff. And what happens if Belichick says, fuck you, I'll have whatever coaching staff I want, or you can tell me to leave. Yeah. And then what happens if Kraft is like, well, maybe it's time for you to go. Like, I do feel like that's in play in a real way. Absolutely. And I think that like, look, going back to the summer, I mean, I was backing Belichick on this offensive coaching staff thing. I mean, I thought that like, it's clear he wanted, you know, and I wrote about it in the book. I mean, if McDaniels had left to take the Colts job after the um, Eagles Super Bowl loss, I think that Bill would have had way more say in the offense. And I think that Joe Judge would have been sort of like the co-offensive coordinator. I think that Bill yep. wanted 
to have more say in the offense for a while. Josh was so good that he had earned um, autonomy in, in coordinating it. And it seems like, you know, that Belichick wanted to run this year like a version of like the Kyle Shanahan light offense, where it was a lot of outside zone reads and whatnot. And it just, quick it screens. just hasn't worked. Yeah, quick screens. Yeah. I mean, it's like they lead the league in like the most predictable screen passes you can possibly throw. I mean, I don't know how they haven't gotten what, what Belichick was always just so good at um, great at was the ability to come up with new game plans that were opponent specific. And they just don't seem to do that anymore. They're very predictable and everyone seems to know it. And, you know, when Bill was talking about what he wanted to do with the offense over the summer, a lot of the quotes were the exact same quotes that he gave like back in the early 90s when he was with the Browns and they had 15 coaches on the staff and no offensive coordinator. He's yeah. we all pitch in, we all know how to do offense, we know how to coach this. And like it sounded, I I went for it. It sounded good to me, but like I should have realized at the time that like nobody was ever talking about the early 90s Browns offense is lighting the league on fire, you know? Right. Well, the other thing is they've made it impossible to know whether Mac is a starting quarterback mm -hmm. or not. My guess yeah. is he's a backup, but he's been so bad this year and just over and over again has killed him and also like has acted really immaturely during games. I thought during the first half of the Raiders game, like he was acting like a seven-year-old, you what know? You and, and, well, I, I, on one hand, yes. On the other hand, you're supposed to be the, you're the pilot of the airplane. Nobody wants to be on an airplane where the pilot's like freaking out and, you know, dumping the dish tra dumping the trays of, uh, of dinner and stuff like that. You kind of want to feel like you're in calm hands yeah. and Mac, Mac has not been calm. He's also been bad. He's turned the ball over a lot. He's overthrown guys all over the place. His red zone stuff, they're the worst red zone team in the league by far. And it's like, my dad is like all in on where the fuck is Zappy. Like <laughs> he's Zappy can't be worse than this. And I, yep. I just think it's impossible to evaluate. So I'm with you. I have no idea. This is the weirdest Patriot season since the, even in the late nineties, we knew we had Bledsoe. <laughs> so you'd almost have to go back to the early nineties where it's like, I don't know who's going to coach the team. I don't know who the quarterback of the team is. I don't know. Our, our owner's 81. There's real Patriots and fuck stuff. Now, people listen to this. They're going to be like, this is great. You guys deserve it. You had 20 years. It was great. And now, welcome to being another team like like everybody else in the league. And that's the reality of this. They're just another team. Yeah, you know? and they are. And they, they there are a lot of teams that might you know sneak into the playoffs now. They don't. They definitely don't have that magic that they had for no, so long. No, not at all. And, you know, I think that, like, Mike Shanahan struggled with this in Denver, where a rebuilding year had to be, like, 7-9 and nine or 8-8. Eight and eight. and remember the year where, the, the COVID year, and Belichick was talking about how we sold out, and that was the kind of year where they, you know, I think they went 7-9 and nine that year with, with Cam and some other quarterbacks, and they kind of had to... Um, that was their year off. That was their get out of jail free card after all that success. And like, you know, the, you have to hit on everything if that's the way you're rolling. And I think that like, look at the Niners. I mean, they had like a pretty good team. They had a bad year. They end up drafting Bosa. And then that just like changes the dynamic of their entire team because in a weird way, they just had such a bad year that they got lucky. And, you know, the Patriots... Robert Kraft doesn't allow two and 14 years or two and 15 now, whatever it might be. And Belichick, you know, is, is 
questionable as he's had some of these decisions this year, I don't think he's capable of coaching a team to only two wins. And so no. they never get to like reset like the other teams do. And then, like you said, what do you do with Mac? I mean, he's had two years now. Does he have a signature win? Um, but in the same sense, how do you evaluate him when Matt Patricia is calling the plays? How do you evaluate him? He looks completely uncomfortable. He hasn't looked in rhythm, you know, almost all year. And it's like, I think that he has a lot of potential. I don't know if he's like a playmaking quarterback like Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields are, but I think he has a lot of potential still. And the one thing that they needed was Mac Jones to continue progressing. And now this year has gone by. Maybe they'll make a run the rest of the year, but the year's gone by and you're still wondering, like, what have you learned more about Mac Jones than you didn't that you didn't know a year ago? Well, we were saying there's been smoke for a while dating back to the Zappy Jones stuff with all of this. And then yeah, Sunday, it, Sunday's the dumbest Patriots loss, not only in the history of the Belichick era, the history of the Patriots. So you have that. And the Patriots, even if they sneak into the playoffs, which it's like a 22% chance, and I don't think they're good enough. I don't think they're going to make it. Um, although it did help that Mike White got scratched for this Thursday Jags game. So who knows? Um, that's where we are with Patriots. That's where we yeah, are with Patriots. Are. Like, oh, great. Mac, uh, Mike White got scratched. I feel better about our playoff chances. I just don't think Kraft's going for this at age 81. And that's the most telling thing with this is the 81-year-old owner and the 70-year-old coach. And and football history is against both of those things. Like, just adamantly against. Now, Belichick's the best coach ever. I don't know how much he cares about breaking the wins record because he's never really talked about it. But you and I both know that he cares about his place in history and how history and the league fits together more than anybody who's coached which makes me wonder if he's going to go for that record, whether it's here or somebody else. I think he should retire. I, I think it's time. I think he's the best coach ever. Like even these last three years, why, what's the point? Um, and it's only going to get probably worse from here, but um, it just feels like we're headed toward a cliff yeah, in some and, way. And maybe we were due. And the, the hardest thing about watching the Patriots this year and about watching the Bucks is that, you know, Brady and Belichick defined themselves and were better than anybody ever at coming through at these critical situations that not only was the rest of the league not thinking about, but they had thought out to the nth degree. Right. I mean, and, and now it's just so sloppy and they don't have that mystique. And it's like, you know, everybody says like, who was more responsible for the dynasty? And, and like, let's be honest, you can't have a dynasty in the NFL without a hall of fame quarterback. You just can't do it. But I mean, they were, everyone says like, oh, is the Patriot way dead? I mean, it's obvious that there was no Patriot way. There was two really special people whose lives intersected at the most critical moments of their life where they wanted to be great at a game that they knew the fragility of. And, you know, they made beautiful music together, even if their personalities were different and they changed the way we think about coaching and quarterbacks and success in professional football and Boston sports in general. And that is just gone now. I mean, watching yeah. Brady last week, I mean, as hard as it was to watch the Patriots, watch bring, watching Brady, you know, turn the ball over four times and just look slow. And, you know, he just, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how he would grade himself in terms of performance this year. Obviously, their play calling has been a mess too. But, um, you know, just the magic that they each had, that they had an abundance together, but they even still grasp onto a part, especially Brady, it's just gone. 
I mean, think about how much, like if Brady had just stayed retired in a weird way, he would have retired the perfect way where like he rallied them down from 27 to three and the, the defensive side of the ball blew the game. Right. <laughs> you know, what better way to go out in a lot of ways? The sad thing for him this year is it just doesn't seem like he wants to get hit anymore. Can't over and over it. again, he's bailing on these plays, you know, a second before he's going to get hit. And that that's the thing. He never used to do that. He would he would be smart about when he was going to get hit, but if it was like a third and eight or, you know, some big play in the red zone, he always took the hit, and now he doesn't anymore. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then I want to talk about uh, Daniel Snyder and, and all that stuff. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is brought to you by Honey Stinger. This is a show about sports and culture opinions, but right now I want to talk sports facts, the data, the stats. Honey Stinger, sports nutrition, trusted by more than 1,500 pro and college teams. That's right, 1,500. That's all 32 pro football teams. That's 39 pro basketball teams, 29 pro baseball teams and more that prepare, perform, and recover with the delicious taste of Honey Stinger's energy waffles, chews, gels, and bars. Honey Stinger is the one team's trust. Use code Simmons for 20% off your first order at honeystinger.com. That is S-I-M-M-O-N-S for 20% off your first order at honeystinger.com. So conspiracy bill watched Giants Washington on Sunday night and couldn't help but notice that Washington got hosed on three or four of the biggest calls of the game. And I got a text from a friend of mine who's pretty connected in the NFL and and he did the whole, see, league sending a message to Snyder tonight that <laughs> he better sell the team or there's going to be more. Who knows if that's true, but, it, but that's how bad the Snyder thing has gotten. Um, there's all kinds of, stuff floating around about this, about Snyder's actually not going to sell. Maybe he just sells to 40% to a minority owner who's actually a minority. And then says like, looks at the league and says, Hey, I just brought in a minority ownership. You're going to now, now I have to go. Who knows what's happening, but what have you heard? You've, you've covered this story uh, impeccably over the last two years. What, what's the latest? Yeah, thanks. No. And it's interesting because the things that when when the owners all gather, you know, at owners meetings a couple times a year, the things that they get most passionate about are money, like the the Rams versus or the St. Louis versus Cronky lawsuit was going to cost them all money and officiating. So, like, it's actually not inconceivable that they that Snyder especially, but that any owner would think that those horrible non calls the other night we're not retribution for something. <laughs> there is right. no way. I mean, th their mind just goes there. It's Some of the smartest people that I've ever met are NFL owners, and I'm just baffled with how conspiratorial they get when they talk about officiating. It's really odd. And maybe it's one of these stories I should probably do one of these days now that I'm talking about it out loud. But Snyder, 
I think that the league is cautiously optimistic that he's going to sell. I think that they know that it's not going to take much for him to turn around and not sell out of spite, both to the other owners and the league. But, and it's obvious that, that the, from the league standpoint, I think there's 24 owners to vote him out right now. I really do. I think, but the league, for whatever reason, is really holding by patients waiting for this Mary Jo White report that they commissioned, which is kind of a do-over for the Beth Wilkinson report. And, um, you know, that report better have some, you know, the interesting thing is, will that report, even if it doesn't have anything new, just convince owners to vote him out? Or, you know, even if it has indisputable evidence that they should vote him out. I mean, a lot is writing on that. And it, you know, I don't know when it's going to come. The sort of unofficial word is that it's January or February, which would set up voting him out in March if he chooses to not sell by then. But I think that's the landscape right now. And it's one of those things that's like, nobody talks about it in owners meetings, really. I mean, Roger does not want to touch this thing. And Don Van Atta and Titian Thompson and I reported on another story about how like owners are so frustrated that even in the privileged sessions, nobody brings up Dan Snyder to have any sort of real discussion about it. It's never happened before, as far as I can remember, in any professional sport where the owners voted out another owner. Even you think like Donald Sterling, they could never get rid of him. Uh, George Shin who got involved in all that uh, that Charlotte stuff. They ended up moving the team to New Orleans, I think. But they they eventually, like, I think he had to sell just because his public standing was so bad. And that that's the thing with Snyder that, I, I don't know how many times you've talked to him, but I know you've been covering this story for a while. I don't understand what's in it for him at this point. If you're him, what's fun about owning the team other than that it's an asset? But you already have a shitload of money and you've already made money off this asset. What is fun about being like basically a pariah in the DMV? You're not a great owner anyway. The other owners don't like you. Is it just like pure stubbornness and spite at this point? Yeah, I think that, you know, look, nobody knows his finances, but I do think that, you know, he's gotten debt limit waivers to buy out his limited partners and take out loans. So how cash rich he is, I think is a question that owners ask themselves. But like, yeah, it's stubbornness. I think he thinks that he's a Joe Burrow away from that team being a contender indefinitely. And all of a sudden, you know, people may not love him, but the cries to get rid of him aren't as bad. I mean, as bad as the atmosphere was at FedEx Field earlier this season, it felt pretty alive the other night when they played the Giants. And so I think that it is stubbornness. I think that he wants to pass on the kids, you know, the team to his kids one day, whether they want it or not. Yeah. And you're right, though. I think all owners would really prefer that he sells and, you know, We'll we'll see what happens. I I think that he's opened the door to it, which I think is a bigger thing than people realize. But he'll he'll shove he'll close it as fast as he possibly can. Or this is a strategy by him to basically buy himself some time and I don't know Jedi mind trick the owners into thinking he's selling, but he has no intention of selling. He's just playing the game. Yeah, everything with him is about buying time right now. I don't think there's any question about that. Everything he's doing is about trying to buy time in the hope that you know, minds change. But like I said, we reported in our story, he's lost Jerry. Now I know that Jerry says that we're their friends or whatever. He doesn't want to want to be the first one or even the second now that Jim Ursay of all people still, it is still remarkable at the owner's meetings that we're hunting out Jim Ursay to see what he'll say about Dan Snyder as he lights up a cigarette. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah. What do you like? 
he, I think that Jerry, when things get close, is probably going to be the one that tries to like nudge Dan out into selling and convincing them that he had a good run, but it's best for everybody if he if he moves on. We'll see. Why does Jerry have so much power as an owner? Like I'm always amazed because you have these 32 owners and they're all wealthy in their own right, right? They're all used to get in their own way. And that that's why it's so interesting to watch how the commissioner and the NFL or the NBA just has to deal with all of these dudes. In every other aspect of their life, everyone just listens to them. They get to do whatever they want. And then this aspect, they don't. So how does somebody ascend to power in that infrastructure where it's just, it's an old boys club, bunch of rich, stubborn guys used to get in their way. And yet it always feels like in the NFL and the NBA, there's four or five guys that can transcend it. So what does he do other than that? He owns the best team to own. Yeah. First, I think that like, there's not as many who care and or comp and are also competent. <laughs> like a lot of these guys, you know, like when Paul Allen owned, owned the Seahawks, like he was never coming to meetings. Like he wasn't going to go there and talk about how after a hundred years of professional football, they still can't figure out what a catch is. I mean, yeah. he had much better things to do with his time. So Jerry, he cares. He's competent. He's vocal. But, you know. Well, wait, is there, is it also that this is his only thing? For some of these guys, they're doing multiple things, right? This is his thing, his job to turn that asset into a bigger asset. It is, but usually like he's on the right side of what ends up getting voted through and groupthink prevails way more in those meetings than people realize. Like there's very few votes that are one or two votes being the difference. Like almost everything is clear. And in fact, like the only thing that hasn't been clear lately was in October in New York at the owners meetings um, in the privilege session, which is owners only, they held a discussion about whether to begin negotiations for Roger Goodell getting a new contract. And Jerry was the one who stood up against it. And when Robert Kraft tried to jump in, Don Van Nat and I reported, he looked at Robert and he said, don't fuck with me on this. Mm. And Robert was like, excuse me? And, you know, Jerry realized that he probably used a word to Robert that he shouldn't have. But that referendum to begin negotiations on a new contract for Roger um, was a 31 to one vote. And Jerry was the only one who voted against it. So, wow. like, he has a lot of influence because he's persuasive. Kraft has a lot of influence because he can be persuasive too. And also those guys, they have stature. And, you know, frankly, like, a lot of owners just, they're, they're more checked out than we kind of want to give them, than we want to believe. Well, like, one of the most interesting NFL owner stories the last five years were the Cronkies, yeah. where... They moved the team out of St. Louis and basically said, come get us. And St. Louis was like, okay. And ended up being, how much was that? Like 600 million, 700 million they had to pay? 700, but it got divided up so that they're actually not going to be paying very much at all. But yeah, I mean, not very much relative to 700, but yeah. Right. So you have that, but then they also built this new arena in LA that's supposed to be somewhere between two and a half and three billion bucks. It ends up being six. Ended up being six. It was more than twice as much as they anticipated. And now there's this whole thing. I, I don't know if this has been out there, but like the World Cup, um, LA got the choice between, do you want to have the opening game and all the ceremonies, which would be Team USA, or do you want to have the final? Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with the stadium they built, which is crazy because he owns Arsenal, 
is it's not quite big enough for soccer for all the stuff they need. So they have to blow out this super exclusive club that they had that's on the ground floor to make room for what they would need for the soccer. It's like, so this is going to cost more money on top of the six billion bucks. But they just seem like they're doing everything by the seat of their pants. It got them a Super Bowl. I don't really feel like it got them um, that much of a groundswell of Rams fan momentum in LA. I guess the smartest thing they did was they figured out how to have the Chargers as tenants in their own building. And I, I don't I still don't know what the Chargers get out of that. But the Crocky stuff, they, it's kind of been a little under the radar, like how bizarre their whole thing has been, right? Yeah, Stan is a guy who like, you know, he, he I think that he's kind of a hidden influential owner. I wouldn't say he's like a power player necessarily, but I think that like he holds a lot of influence and some sway and he's arrived to it by bullying them. Like you said, I mean, Bandana and I reported about it in the time. I mean, he he basically threatened to he was going to LA. Nothing yeah. was going to stop him. He really, you know, did not care about whether the owners approved him going. He was going to go. And for that you know, he he obviously built this stadium at enormous personal cost, got sued by the city of St. Louis, which caused, a bu- you know, a bunch of owners to have to go through discovery and all this stuff, cost Stan even more money in legal bills and settlement, cost owners money. And, you know, I'm not sure that, like, Stan cares about the NFL any more than he did five years ago. But, yeah, he, I mean, he is somebody who... um he seems to be on the right side of things. And I think that like, you know, he figured out a way to get LA a Super Bowl, even though he has not figured out a way that team, despite all of, you know, the success that they've had and the fact that they struck lightning with Sean McVay. I mean, it's embarrassing that they have to use a silent count at home, not only in their biggest games, but in some just like mundane divisional games, like against the Niners. It's unbelievable that they have to do that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, so we had that situation. The Miami situation was pretty bizarre. That got crazy. And it's still like in kind of motion, right? How's that going to play out? Um, I mean, I think that Stephen Ross will return when he's allowed to return and he can be pissed at Roger all he wants. But, um, you know, it, like in the way that that Deflategate was kind of a makeup call for Spygate, like it feels a lot like that the Ross suspension for tampering had much more to do with the things that Brian Flores said and the possible tanking, the tanking for Tua, than it did the actual tampering with Tom Brady. I mean, um, Mm. that's the way it felt to me. And it definitely, I think that in the ownership circles, when they talk about it, they talk about that like it's an assumption. That Like, Ross got punished for being so flagrant with the way that he treated Flo and, um, you know, the entire, you know, dangling the $100,000 for losing games um, than it was anything that he did with Tom Brady because as the years go on, I think that we'll discover that a lot more teams tampered pretty flagrantly with Tom Brady. (laughs) You know, the Tom Brady tampering thing, I think everybody who roots for the Pats and everybody in New England kind of see it, but we don't want to, it's like, eh, I don't want to talk about it. It's like finding out your dad had an affair or something. Yeah. He was definitely out there throwing it around that last season, batting his eyelashes at everybody. And the Miami thing was a real thing. That was our division rival. We were going against them and he was setting up a whole, you know, giant whatever. And I think that falling through was another pretty good what if from the last few years. Tell me quickly before we go about uh, 
Denver, they pay all that money for that team and they stumble into the Wilson trade slash contract, which is the single worst NFL transaction in the last 10 years. And that's how you start your ownership reign. Like, I, like what's the word of the street in Denver? I, I don't think there's any question that Nathaniel Hackett will be replaced. I mean, I just, I think that yeah. the in-game adjustments, you know, the fact that like they just, they haven't looked prepared going into a lot of games. And then like this season, frankly, has been a huge referendum on how good of a coach Pete Carroll is because he ate all that shit for all those years under the let Russ cook, knowing that Russ could only cook a little bit, but just let it happen. Let that entire narrative happen. And frankly, like no matter what happens to the Seahawks the rest of the year, John Schneider should be executive of the year because of that trade he pulled off. There was no other suitors for Russell Wilson. And even Denver, which I still think hired Hackett, hoping that they could get Aaron Rodgers. Oh, and still yes. even is like, even as the Russell Wilson trade was going down, still wondering if Aaron Rodgers would just pull the plug on Green Bay and go to Denver. Um, he still managed, John Schneider still managed to pull out that trade. I mean, I know that Howie Roseman's done a great job, but I mean, how can you not, if you're grading on a curve, just say that John Schneider's the executive of the year because of how what he did to Denver. I mean, what he did to them. He has screwed up that franchise for years unless Russell Wilson decides he wants out. That is another great what if from the last 10 years is just what if Rodgers just gets traded to Denver? Because I'm not sure he's going to be playing that much differently in Denver than we just saw this year in Green Bay where he, you know, I don't know why we're always surprised when this happens with quarterbacks. It goes. It goes somewhere between mid-30s to late-30s or in Brady's case, it took till he was like 44. But it's going to go. We watched it with Peyton Manning. We watched it with Dan Marino. Watched it with Joe Montana. Elway was smart enough to get out right before it happened to him, but it's going to happen. It's the hardest position we have. So I, I, I don't know with, from a Denver's case, I don't even know if the Rogers thing would have been that much better. Um, what it, you must be working on some secret big story next that you can't tell us about. Totally can't tell you about. something in the hopper. We'll see. We'll see. All right. I look forward to reading it. Seth, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, man. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Seth Wickersham. Thanks to Rob Mahoney. Thanks to Kyle Crane for producing as always. We'll see you one more time on Thursday.